0: The Movie Morgue podcast is supported by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you want to learn how to support our show, please go to patreon.com slash double For the month of October, we're going to be having a look at films about hauntings. Now, this means that most of our conversations are going to revolve around issues of physical and psychological trauma, abuse, and other forms of violence. If this material just isn't for you, that's totally fine. Feel free to skip this episode, and we'll catch you next time.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, and ghosts of all persuasions, welcome to The Movie Morgue, the movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, animator-at-large Silvio Emery,
0: And I am visual culture scholar Annie Neller.
1: And today we are cutting into the 2015 gothic horror...
0: I think that's good. Gothic horror. It's gothic horror.
1: Crimson Peak. I I, I, I hesitated (laughs) on the title for some reason and I don't know why. (laughs) The 2015 gothic horror... I think I was looking for a word there. Is like gothic horror excursion. Tour de force. Romp. Like, exactly. Anyways. So, for the edit, the 2015 gothic horror film, Crimson Peak, directed by Guillermo del Toro. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah. Uh, Eddie, uh, let's talk context a little bit about what this film is. Uh, we love Guillermo del Toro because we are unabashed fanboys and girls. And, uh, you suggested this one for us. Um, By the way, happy October,
0: everyone. Yay! Yay! It's kind of fall. Kind of. Sort of.
1: Yeah. So, um, we wanted to do a theme month again because October is fun and Halloween is so much fun. So, uh we decided to kind of do like hauntings and you actually wanted you the one who suggested we start here with crimson peak and tell me a little bit more about that
0: yeah um i thought we could kind of well okay so first of all you told me you had never seen this movie before and i was like well you know usually i'm the one who's never seen anything so let me make this happen but also i got the chance to see this movie in theaters like i it was a while back in 2015 and i took the day and just like went out to see it. And I remember being very, very taken with this movie. Um, I don't know that it translates very well for American audiences, but I remember being really enthralled by it because I was taking a class on, um, American Gothic literature at the time. So kind of wanted to share that with you, but also it's fall over here. The leaves are starting to turn. It's just, It's got this real Edgar Allan Poe feeling over here in the U.S. right now. It felt appropriate somehow. And so I thought we could work from this movie um, to some of the other major films about hauntings.
1: I'm a big fan of Del Toro's work, and this has kind of been my negligence in following up on that. Um, But also, this movie kind of had a bit of a troubled release. Yeah, it did. At least internationally. Um, it performed below expectations, and it was in theaters outside of the U.S. I think fairly briefly. It made back like seventy-five on a fifty-five budget, basically. I think was the numbers. So, it's and I did see the discourse around it really kind of spring up after it had left theaters. So, it's a bit of a weird one uh, in terms of that, and it was in theaters briefly, but I was. At the theater to see something else, and while I wanted to see a Del Toro film, I hadn't heard enough about it, and it just wasn't a priority. So, I, I missed the chance to see this in theaters. But I got to see it last night, so it's great. Um, let's let's review this. Go ahead. Uh, and I guess yeah, I'll start, ahead. since... Uh, I did... This one's an A-plus for me. Um, it's frankly haunting... <laughs> <laughs> really <laughs> but like it's genuinely beautiful and it is at times viscerally upsetting and at times just sinister and tense and it's very different i think to what a lot of people expect out of horror films and that might we'll get into that later but i was just kind of enraptured the entire time and i It's just gorgeous. Like, I don't see a lot of films that are this beautiful as still images. Like, the compositions in this are tight, the camera moves. The very building is a character, and it is a beautiful character. Mm.
0: Yeah. I remember at the time when I saw this movie, I was enthralled with it, but I think it also made me a bit upset because I knew that in translating a gothic sort of like well it's really his own sort of gothic novel it's del toro's own version of a gothic novel and i knew that in him translating this to film that at least here in the states i I wasn't sure that american audiences were quite gonna get it and i think that was something that sort of decreased my enjoyment of it the first time that i saw it this time though i have to say I don't know whether it's my mood or what, but I'm going to go ahead and give this film an A+. Because, uh, like you, I enjoy the meticulousness of Del Toro's work, uh, the cinematography. The story itself is, um, I don't necessarily want to call it the greatest story in the world, but it is very well put together and there's some kind of fun performances in this but there's also parts of this movie that you they don't leave your mind once you walk away from it and I really appreciate that about this film. Yeah, that's my review. Okay. Yeah,
1: um and uh so yeah, spoilers I guess from this point going on onwards. And also, uh, I think a little bit of a content warning for this one, uh, though we might want to put it at the beginning as well, is uh, we are going to be dealing with themes of, uh, so the warning itself is a spoiler, themes of incest, uh, sexual violence, and body horror. Uh, so, that and abuse also. Um, that being said, let's kind of get into the mechanics of this and... I want to start on a high note because this is one of those things that kind of got me right from the beginning. Is the ghost designs are absolutely
0: they're gorgeous. amazing,
1: and yeah. because we we came to this kind of from a perspective talking about ghost movies and having this extended conversation about what is a ghost movie, <laughs> yeah. how hauntings are sometimes a person and sometimes yeah. not, and they kind of ride the razor's edge between being in those two states. Um. And actually how ghost stories are less common than we think they are. And especially in the kind of Eurocentric, anglospheric uh, setting where we think of when we think of ghost stories, we think of like the Canterbury Tales and shit. It's, it's very old world, and especially with America. Uh, like, you know, our history is not as long. We do not have as many old buildings. So, you know, when when you have American, like, you know, I guess you'd call it like historic ghosts, It's most like, and a Civil War soldier haunts this building. You know, it's like. There, there's the, there's no old blood and uh blood is
0: it yes <laughs> very much so
1: <clears throat> so it's actually like way more common in like japanese filmmaking or you know others uh southeast asian countries we'll, we'll get into that in later episodes and other films but um so one of the things i found is like there are different kinds of ghosts in film um And I think some of the most effective ones are, you know, the unseen, the poltergeist of the world. Those are some of the most terrifying ones in the Western filmic tradition. Uh, Other than that, ghosts are generally considered and, you know, formulated in people's minds and creative decisions as being spectral, as being gauzy, as being immaterial. That is part of the horror is being untouched. But Del Toro's designs in this are meaty. And that's kind of incredible. Like, there is a real reckoning with the physical body and the decay. And so, like, they are immaterial beings, but they move in material ways. Um, And from the very first sequence where uh, where Edith is talking about how she was first visited by a ghost when she was a young girl. And the skeleton, like, first of all, the movement of her mother's ghost is terrifying. Yeah, it is. Um, by the way, uh, podcast favorite, Doug Jones. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful work from Doug Jones. But, uh, he, um, so first of all, he's got that just really creepy movement that I love. But when her hand comes up and like cradles her head and you see the bony skeleton fingers and you have the face that's this weird mix between like a desiccated corpse and a skull, it's just wonderful. just from the very first ghost you see, they are very powerful. And with uh Lady Sharp, her entire ghostly appearance is rooted in violence. like the cleaver in her head, blood is dripping off them. like there's a couple different ghosts that are kind of similar, I think. yeah, like Enola, Enola and is. Lady Sharp are very yeah. similar. I think you might call them the Ghost of Crimson Peak collectively.
0: Yeah.
1: Um but uh like there's there's a reckoning and also the way the way they move Doug Jones does an pr- incredible performance in this and uh specifically like it's a weird moment to call out to but when she steps when uh Lady Sharp steps out of the tub the way she physically like slips and like cautions and steadies herself is a very physical act that makes her more real and in some ways makes her more terrifying it's because the terror here isn't that we can't see them or touch them the terror is that they will
0: yeah yeah and that's a very like human thing to steady yourself but also i think like that just terrified me all the more when you see her shift from this kind of transparent spirit to being sort of corporeal which was very odd um usually in a lot of ghost films you know like you either have that invisible ghost that you were talking about before or you have some kind of spirit that is like neither here nor there like transparent in some way And this This is something else and I really kind of like that because when Edith encounters the ghosts, we get this real sense that um, in the world of the supernatural, not only are they outside of time, they're also inside of time, but there's something about them. They're trying to communicate with people and their appearance is so off-putting that people don't listen. They let fear kind of take over. And so I thought that was really communicated well through the bodily movement, like how they make the audience feel that.
1: The other thing is, I think is kind of interesting is the designs are concerned with body. And I'm going to be on design for a while here because that's it's fine. one of my areas of interest. And it's legit. But also it's one of the things that's really fascinating about this because, generally speaking... Um, when we look at ghosts, uh, there's a couple different approaches that happen. You know, you have the gauzy, you have the blurry image. And especially looking at historical uh, kind of ghost fiction, a lot of this is rooted in the media of...
0: Photography? You know,
1: the photography. And so, like, a lot of the kind of imagery that we have in mind of ghosts is stuff like, you know, trick photography or multi-exposure plates and so on. So it's very often these kind of very ethereal, very difficult to see things and we get a bit of it there like there's one ghost that i think that we never really explain that's just like a kind of wisp of shadow and that's kind of what we think of but these we are allowed to see these ghosts and they are not gauzy women uh but what we do see is we see bones we see broken features we see exposed things and like Lady Sharp is a great example because when she steps out, she is a bloody, dripping skeleton. But there's also, like, this kind of ethereal mass that shows her body and the skeleton is contained within it. These are meaty ghosts. Like, they they have breasts, for one thing. Like, they are the ghosts are 90% women because of the story going on. But, like, and it's not just, oh, they, they don't have a bosom they have breasts, and those are dripping red and wet with blood and it's adds to the terror like they're naked ghosts the they reckon with having had a body and with have, having had a body that is rotted or mutilated or broken
0: yeah actually did you ever see it follows
1: I did see It Follows.
0: Because that was one of the things that Lady Sharp's ghost reminded me of. Um, this nude, older woman. There's a particular scene in It Follows for any of our listeners who have yeah, seen I, it.
1: Yeah, I remember. I know the one you're talking about.
0: That was kind of what it reminded me of in this way. I mean, it's, it's definitely about death and decay and aging in these very stark physical terms, which is also partly why I think I liked it so much. Um, but a, a lot of the ghosts that we see carry the marks of their trauma, like they are quite literally manifestations of trauma, which is, I think, why they reside between the corporeal and sort of like the image, like the non-corporeal world, because they are trauma. So, yeah. I do like the design, yeah. though. Did you watch the behind the scenes video? There's a lot of them I online. have not. Okay. Uh,
1: I I intend to honestly because first of all, like whenever Del Toro works on something, there is so much enthusiasm and love for it. Like I would love to visit Del Toro's house. Have you seen his house?
0: I have. I've seen. It's the just notebooks, a gallery. Ugh. It's
1: it's oh I I. I I just want to hang out with Guillermo del Toro. Uh, dear Guillermo del Toro, uh, please hang out with me. I'll, I'll save that for the letter <laughs> please to the Please be Doc's
0: best friend. I would love to see his notebooks yes, for this movie, too, though. The kinds of designs that he went through for this movie. Maybe I'll see if oh, I can absolutely. find some of those
1: for after. Yeah, no, because I, I love his notebooks for uh, Hellboy, for example.
0: Oh, yeah, those are the best.
1: Mm, just positively gorgeous stuff. Um, so, yeah, the ghosts are good. Let's, um, let's talk about performances a little bit, because uh, one of the things is... Uh, the ghosts were very well done, and they were pretty much entirely CGI, from what I could tell.
0: The ghosts?
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Um, they were actually a mix of practical effects and CGI, which is part of what makes them so cool. We'll put a link on our Facebook group page so that people can see the making of it if they're interested in it.
1: Okay. I, I'm curious, because... Is it, like... I, I def, I've definitely recognized that it was Doug Jones doing a lot of work, uh, oh, yeah. particularly in the movements. But there's a lot of CGI, I think, kind of surrounding that that makes it feel unreal. Because one of the things that people look at when they use practical effects, especially in horror, is they try to ground them and make them feel realistic. You try to remove the separation between the monster, because that's you know typically what we think of in these situations, and the actor. You know, you want them to exist on the same plane. But even when they're using practical effects in this, uh, there's smoke coming out of them, there's blood dripping off of them, and they feel unreal. They feel like they are not part of the same plane as the actors.
0: Yeah, I can actually definitely see that. We should really leave a link for people to check that out because it is. it seems like they put in a lot of physical work into the CGI itself, which I'm sort of impressed and confused by because that's just not my work like i don't do animation um but it, it does seem like del toro wanted to see a lot of practicals in this as well which was really kind of cool
1: well i mean with del toro it's all about the sets really um oh yeah yeah like del toro loves his practical effects and like he has created some of the most gorgeous props ever seen in cinema. By the way, um, hashtag Give Del Toro Star Wars, please. Start that, please. Yeah, no, that would be please. fucking lovely. <laughs> um, but like, that is a because that is a thing that is notable in so much of Del Toro's work is pretty much everything he builds is real outside of like Pacific Rim, which is kind of its own individual thing, like. Pacific Rim was a very specific thing that it was not achievable with practical models. Although, in my mind, I do think there is a version of that where where Del Toro called for them to do it in stop motion, and I want to see that version. But what we got was pretty good. Yeah, giant CGI robots—that's kind of difficult to do.
0: We'll take what we Um That
1: being said, for the most of the rest of his body of work, it's all practical effects and it's all really grounded. But Del Toro builds worlds. Um, And so given his body of work, I do think it is an exceptional and very deliberate choice to use this much CGI to, I guess, extract the ghost from the world. Because when you look at literally everything else he's done is here's a monster like stuff like, you know, Abe Sapien is a costume. Uh, The Pale Man is a costume. Right. The fucking the Angel of Death from Hellboy 2 with the eyes on the wings. You know, Samael is a mix of CGI, but there's a giant fucking puppet they have that thing. Oh,
0: I didn't know that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he he will go to so many lengths to make something real. I think half because, you know, there's like a 50-50 odds he'll get to keep it in his house. But also because that's the kind of effects he seems to enjoy. So to have this much CGI feels deliberate to me.
0: Yeah, I... I definitely think so. And I I think you're right, though, too, that the combination of practicals and CGI adds the sort of otherworldliness to it. And that definitely works out. We could... Uh, you said you wanted to talk about some other performances, too.
1: Yes, I did. Because uh, otherwise we're just going to be doing that thing where we suck off Doug Jones the entire time. <laughs>
0: true, true. How can we help um,
1: ourselves? So... Why don't you start? I feel like I've taken up a lot of time so far. Today. Oh,
0: okay. Um, some some of the performances in this. I mean, there's a lot of really fun ones. I do enjoy Mia Vashikovska as uh Edith. Edith is kind of this ingenue character who um is a <sighs> Arguably, at at the time that this movie starts, she would have been considered to be a spinster. She takes care of her dad a lot. She's a very caring person. Um, She's also a person who, even when she sees things put out in front of her quite plainly, is not fully ready to acknowledge what's actually happening, which she tells Charlie Hunnam's character. um, When they're looking at some of the spirit photography in his lab, and I kind of yeah. like that about her. She's a flawed ingenue protagonist, um, and Mia Vashikovska gives this really kind of vulnerable, sweet performance as this naive young woman who discovers these really horrible things. Yeah,
1: I can I can definitely see that. Um, I want to give some props to Jessica Chastain. Yes, uh, she is she is a nut. She's in peak in this form. Movie
0: peak for that is the
1: only way to describe it is she is completely full of intensity and I don't think malice is the word it's obsession it's it's a very complicated thing to describe what her kind of energy is in this film but she's got it Mm -hmm. she's absolutely got it and I love the small little detail like and this isn't her performance This is the makeup but the scar right above her lip yep it's 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 great in that it's subtle enough that you can miss it or see it depending on the shot and depending on how closely you're focusing on it. And I think that's just a lovely little bit of uh, character work because it also kind of accentuates the overall themes of her character is, like, appearances versus realities.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, the real um, sharp twins kind of haunt the performances given by Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain throughout the movie. It's really not until they come back to their home that we see their characters fully become corporeal, I guess we'll put it. Um, Because when they're in the United States, they're just... You can tell there's something going on. There's something that haunts kind of laying below the surface of, of what the characters are playing at. Chastain's character is malevolent at times and I love it it's she's just such a fantastic actress and to see her do her work in this movie is is wonderful and I think also too because she's she's so dominant in this role like she is very dominant over uh Thomas Sharp which was kind of an interesting sibling dynamic to see like she seems to be the one who has some form of dominance, even though he's trying to take care of her at the same time. It's a really fascinating and complicated dynamic that they have together.
1: Also, um, her ghost is, I think, one of the most like compelling, you know, gothic, um, not terror images, but, you know, horror. Like, the tragic figure of her on the piano at the end, in the end is haunting. Like I, I'm gonna use that word a lot, but when Del Toro goes for a haunting, Del Toro goes for a haunting, and it's kind of difficult to get away from that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's okay.
1: Um, shall we address the Hiddleston in the room?
0: <laughs> you might as well. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of him in this?
1: I liked him in this. Um, I I'm not 100% on board with some of the decisions regarding the character of Thomas Sharp, um, but I recognize that they kind of play within the genre. Um, and on, as an overall judgment, it works for me. Like, this is one of those things where it's like, this isn't necessarily made for me, I think, in because one of the things I noticed in particular, especially once the twist is revealed – you know, that they are in a pair of incestuous twins and so on. Um, the kind of framing and cinematography around that and the way that the story chooses to present itself kind of strips away some of the horror and begins to present itself as like a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, Marie Brennan uses this all the time. <laughs> um, fucking... <laughs> ah! Uh, what's it called? Like, you know... Um, Pride and Prejudice type stuff. Oh, Prestige, oh, fiction. period piece um,
0: cinematography.
1: Not not period piece. Um, It's like, there's a name for that genre. It's escaping me, it's driving me nuts.
0: Oh, are you talking about, like, Jane Austen, like, Edwardian literature?
1: Yeah, there, there's... Hmm... It's going to hit me in like 20 minutes. (laughs) We'll figure it out. The
0: thing! We'll figure it out.
1: We'll we'll figure it out.
0: But yeah, you're right that it does Um, go into that. And it's
1: Yeah, like it becomes like, you know.
0: Feels like
1: a break. Especially like the shot of him, of uh, Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain, you know, with the hand job shot. That is right out of a bodice ripper. Oh, yeah. Like that is a romance novel cover.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yup.
1: It's a great romance cover, but it's mean, what it is. Yeah. Um, But no, he... I, I think part of it is me not really buying the... And I, I think it's this, this is probably more an issue with the script than any performance, but the whole, like, oh, but I really do love her twist I don't particularly dig. But he plays it well. Uh, he, Tom Hiddleston is kind of an interesting case... In, you know, Hollywood heartthrobs. Because he has a very unusual appeal. Uh, You know, kind of... uh, Kind of ambiguous. Kind of androgynous. And very popular. Uh, Especially since the Avengers. He broke out so very, very hard. Um, Famously, that one guy's wife still loves him. What? And, uh... Yeah, um... It works. He's very vulnerable, actually, and that is one thing that I think he does very well. He has a very intense gaze, and he is very pleading, and that works very wonderfully, I think.
0: Yeah, I really agree with that. In the scenes where he's trying to convince Edith to come back with him trying to convince her that what he said (laughs) he didn't really mean that that he was paid to do that he's very compelling and there's this kind of magnetic presence that he's able to exude in that scene and you can see why edith gets drawn in i also have reservations about the character of thomas sharp some of the stuff that you expressed i totally get I tried to think of other actors that I thought could play in this role, especially you know British folks who have done work in period pieces and I just really can't think of anybody else. I think that Tom Look, if
1: you're going with British actors, you're just looking at bendy dick cumberbatch come on
0: Ugh, bandersnatch Cumberbund this was not this is not <laughs> the film for him. um I think he would have presented potentially like he's too tall, he's too masculine i guess would be the term and uh, i liked how you described hiddleston as being a bit more ambiguous i think that works here because we get this feeling that these two kids endured a lot of abuse in their home even though that's not really detailed in the storyline whatsoever um, that their terrible and horrifying actions are coming out of somewhere and i think also chastain scar that you mentioned too that um, leads to that and so to have her kind yeah. of be the bigger sister and for him to sort of have this almost adolescent appearance, despite being this sort of foppish figure, works very well for me.
1: Yeah. And the other thing I'm noticing, and a character that I think is more important than we might initially think, is Jim Beaver as Carter Cushing. Uh Edith Cushing's father. Oh, he's crazy. Um, specifically because I use Ambiguous, I think, for a very specific reason. And first of all, because As an actor and in the kind of meta-text of our familiarity with Tom Hiddleston. That is a part of his appeal. That is a part of his image. And I'm not going to take away from that. But I think it is also important to this film because uh, Jim Beaver there is as a contrast in masculinity. Yeah. Uh, He is constantly shaving. He is keeping trim. But also, he represents the American industrialists, the, you know, bootstraps, fucking, you know... Um, what's the guy? He he represents your Howard Hughes. Yeah,
0: the nouveau riche robber baron industrialist. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely.
1: But you know, you 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 notice how many scenes because he's he's only in like the first fifteen minutes of the movie, and he spends about half that time shaking. (laughs) Yeah. So when you compare him to this kind of uh this nouveau riche industrialist who talks about rough hands. To this kind of foppish, tailored, manicured, old money, you know, kind of wilting tragic tragic figure is it's a very direct contrast.
0: It is quite a clear cut distinction and it's one that's very historically accurate to, you know, it's a really interesting moment that this movie is sort of poised on the brink of. It's the, I think, mid-century in the 19th century and... You have a lot of people coming over from Europe during that time to visit the Americans, and you know, Europe is held to be the standard of all that is cultured during this time period, and America is attempting to cut its swath into that. Uh, you have a lot of people who are not old money who are here, um, like Edith and her family, and so part of the way that they distinguish themselves from the European aristocracy when the Europeans visit is this idea of a. Uh, this ethic of hard work, that Americans are fundamentally hard working, and that part of the reason why the European aristocracy is in decline is because they're lazy. So that's where this sort of like soft hands metaphor comes in. What was once a gendered way to distinguish between women of different social classes in um, England now becomes a way to both feminize the aristocracy and also a way to distinguish between Americans and Europeans. It's a really interesting and weird metaphor.
1: Okay, so I actually want to know your thoughts specifically about Charlie Hunnam as Dr. Alan McMichael. (laughs) Okay. I'm curious to your read on the character, because I have some thoughts, but... I want to see, kind of because I think you're more familiar with the kind of period piece that we're talking about and the kind of gothic fiction, so I want to see, like, kind of your take on it before I start talking.
0: So this is actually a movie that I've used to teach on the gothic before because the character tropes are laid out so perfectly in this movie. It's great. Um, you've got your three archetypal characters. Uh, you've got the female protagonist who is smart but she's also deeply romantic and the interplay between those two things shapes the plot she also has her first sexual awakening it's usually with a dark anti-hero who is modeled after lord byron he typically has dark hair and he's handsome and charming you know that there's something nefarious that he's up to but still she decides that you know she likes him enough to give him a try And then we have the third character whom Charlie Hunnam plays to a T. And this is the sort of golden boy, boy next door type character. Oftentimes he'll be a family friend or a friend of a friend whom she's just encountered for the first time. And this guy is kind of, you know, he's seen the world, but he's not tainted by it. In fact, he uses his worldly knowledge to help his friends, uh, and uh, most times also the female protagonist. He oftentimes shows up at the beginning of the novel and then disappears for a while and shows up again at the end. He's sort of the bread in the Gothic sandwich, if you will. And, you know, he's just kind of a warm and charming and affable guy. And a lot of times he's the guy who ends up with the female protagonist because during the Victorian period, uh, a happy ending for a Victorian woman was a marriage to somebody of your social status or higher. So there it is. And Charlie Hunnam does a really pretty good job. You know, he's warm and he's affable and he's likable in this movie. Like he's believable to have been her friend um, for years. They kind of had that uh, repartee, I guess. I I liked his performance. Um, I tried to think of other people who would do well in this role, and I just couldn't really think of anybody who could exude that type of uh, charm and warmth.
1: I think Charlie Hunnam is fine in the role. Um, I actually I actually like him in this, um, particularly because one thing I notice is I do have those expectations. Regency drama, Regency drama. Those are the see. I told you. Regency romance, Regency romance is the uh-huh. genre I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. See, I told you it'd pop into my brain. Um. But in in a Regency romance like this, um, definitely as the academic and as the character, um, like he, there is an archetype to be played into, and I felt like it did in at least in my interpretation of the film, uh, some sub- subvert that because there does not. They seem even with all the tribulations they go through, it does not seem like an explicitly romantic relationship. Uh, so, like, when he shows up to save her, when he's investigating, I don't see, I think, any of the signifiers that I normally expect where he, you know, I I would expect his character to be investigating because he feels like he should have been with her instead. I feel like it's more out of concern for someone he considers a friend, especially, I think, what really helps that is the kind of scenes where they talk about her book uh, or where they look at the spirit photography and they seem to share academic interests and they feel like friends.
0: They do feel like friends. And that's, again, very period specific. Uh, Victorian ideals about love and courtship were very centered in the idea of um, amiable friendship and companionship as the ideal form of partnership. So, um, you know, that's me bringing my knowledge of the genre to bear on this movie and perhaps reading into the text. But, uh, you know, they're presented as sort of, you know, kind of like intellectual peers to a certain extent. And that's another thing that you see in the Victorian uh, era novel at times. So, yeah, I think that was kind of what I read into it. Um, The other thing that I wanted to mention just for the sake of our listeners is the distinction between the Regency era and the Victorian period. It's an important distinction to make because in Regency-era novels, uh, what you see is, uh, well, the stuff that you'd be familiar with is Jane Austen, you know, *Sense Sensibility, Pride, and Prejudice. Those sorts of very localized family dramas that are also about courtship and marriage and, you know, passing on the family line, that sort of stuff. Um, That's come to be this whole romance novel genre in itself called Regency, which is its own thing. Uh, But the actual period that comes after that is the Victorian Gothic. And it's, you know, it is this movie. It's this exploration of, well science is kind of reshaping the way that we think about faith and spirituality and the divine and it's making us ask questions about judeo-christian values and you know it's getting us to think more about human sexuality and what this means and all that sort of stuff so they're two very distinctive periods um and I just wanted to make sure that listeners knew that. Uh, that way, no one tells anyone that Crimson Peak is a Regency story. Although that would be hella fun, but that would also be Pride and Prejudice and zombies and not Crimson Peak.
1: Oh no! Do, do you actually? Isn't see? I because here's the here's the thing. And I have some things about first and second views to talk about. But I will confess, I only saw the film once. I meant to see it again before oh, we okay. recorded, but uh, it's been storming and weather yeah. and some other stuff going on. But um. Because Leslie Hope is credited as Mrs. McMichael. Yes. So he might be married.
0: Um. S- no, that's his mom. That's the one who gives Edith a bit of a set okay. down when she, twice, because she's shady as hell because it's Buffalo, New York at the turn of the century. She's the Fair, one who huh? tells Edith that she will help her to find her place. Okay. Yeah. Okay, girl. I was
1: expecting more of that at the beginning of the film. Like, it seems to set up, like, some very, you know, drama in the aristocracy. And then it's just like, ah, no, fuck, dude's dead. We're going well, to England. Well, and that's
0: what distinguishes Gothic novels from Regency novels, right? The Regency novel is very local. It's it's usually rooted in, in one setting. The Gothic novel is oftentimes about travel or... Th- that's where Dracula comes in, and that's why you get epistolary novels, which are letters that are sent to people. It's a small detail, but it's what distinguishes the two things. Burn Gorman was also in this. He has a small role. He's, uh, I think, a private detective that they've hired to track down information. Like, it's a bit part, but I was just like, oh, Burn Gorman's here. That's kind of fun. Yeah.
1: No, I, I yeah. love him. He's great. Actually, no, I want to go back to Tom Hiddleston okay. for a second, um, because there is one weakness that I think is kind of outside the purview of the actor himself, is I don't like his ghost.
0: Well, yeah.
1: I don't mind that they had his ghost, although I think I would have preferred all the ghosts of this film to be women, um, just because that – I don't really have a greater philosophical point that I want to reinforce with that. It just feels
0: – Natural. It feels yeah. right
1: for this film. Yeah, it, it 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 seems to flow with the fiction because you have so many ghosts and they are so non-specific. I think, like, um, and part of it seems to be the tragedy. Like, a lot of this is about, uh, you know, there are themes within the ghosts. You have themes of motherhood. You have th- two twice. You have themes of motherhood. You have jilted lovers. You have murdered lovers. And so, you know, to have this one... And also, he's the prettiest ghost. He's the princely ghost. Yeah. And that's, I think, why I kind of hate him in that.
0: I, uh, I agree. Because
1: it also... It codifies his... Um, it codifies his redemption.
0: It, it does, and it also codifies his trauma as equivalent to that which he's inflicted on these other women. Which is also why I kind of wanted all the ghosts in the movie to be women exclusively as well because this story the reason why they kill these women is to restore their family's wealth. They are an aristocratic family that is without money which is what was happening in England around this time and they are willing to kill anyone and you know just scheme people out of their money to do these things and that's where the source of the trauma comes from is from them scheming their way back into wealth after their dad has lost all their money so yeah it it made his trauma seem equivalent to those of the other women in the story and i just wasn't quite buying it entirely but that might be me
1: yeah I mean, I think I would be okay with him being a ghost. I just wouldn't want him to be so recognizable He's got to
0: be less pretty. That's, that's the bottom line.
1: I mean, the weird thing is also he is just less pretty. It's just he's prettier than... He's just more human. Like, the contacts, the makeup. It just, like, it doesn't feel like Tom Hiddleston at that point. For some reason, I think of Johnny Depp when I look at that image. It's also image.
0: not as horrifying as his actual death scene is. Yeah. yeah, which...
1: Uh... Um, like, it's, it's very beautiful and tragic and flowy, and that's, I think, what, kind of what I don't yeah. like about it. Uh, when you look at the other ghosts, they're dripping in blood or clay, yeah. or they're skeletonized, walking tendrils of smoke, or there's one that's like a distortion, a shimmer in the air. And, like, even when you look at uh, Lucille's ghost, uh, she is, like, you know, the woman in black yeah. playing the piano is there is something specific, and and I think that's the other thing, is the other ghosts are specific and vague in that way that well-designed ghosts yeah. are. They are one thing, and we don't quite know what that one thing is. With Lucille, we do. With everyone else, we have to figure it out. But with Tom Hilson's ghost, you know, Thomas Sharp's ghost, we see him at a specific moment, and he is appealing directly to another character, so, he feels like he's moving much more like a living person than any other ghost in the film. He is, he is not haunting a place or a time. He is haunting a person.
0: Yep.
1: So, yeah, that's, that's why I could. Also, like, I don't like the context. No, no those, those didn't work don't for me. because don't work at all. Because... Uh, a huge part of, I think, his visual appeal as an actor is he has these very open eyes, these v- strikingly blue eyes that he's very good at manipulating as an actor. And so, like, I think, like, if you had him be, like, a nasty, gnarled-up ghost and he, you still had those eyes, that would totally oh, work for yeah, me. Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: I was also kind of expecting that... I think some of the visual language in their setup that I would expect that... Uh, Lucille would get caught up in the machine.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering what happened there. The machine seemed to be set up from the time that they arrived at the house to be some sort of plot device. And it really was not. So I'm wondering whether there was a production issue or what happened there exactly. I don't know.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, specifically it does steam uh, Tom Hiddleston's hand, it does injure him, and it takes them a while to get it run. And they're running it well past when the snow starts coming and the dirt starts hardening and we start to have the problems that will shut down the economy of the house. So part of the kind of overall narrative of the Sharp family seems to be industry into recklessness. And so, I was really expecting, like, Lucille's hair to get caught in the gears or something.
0: Yeah, I think that actually would have been a fairly fitting end for her. Like, the, the end fight scene is interesting, but I do have to agree. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know, because, like, the other thing is, like, that is my one disappointment is uh, when Edith Kind of hits her in the head with a shovel, you know, I told you it, either I kill you or you kill me. It's like, bang, I heard you the first time. Like that feels very you know, like, you know, Van Helsing, you know, it's like if you're going to kill someone, kill them. It's it it's a little too badass and a little too quippy. And I think modern, strangely enough,
0: it sounds like a studio note to me. It 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 sounds like a studio note, and it makes me, again, I wonder if the last 15 to 20 minutes of this film had to be reshot at some point because somebody at the studio didn't like the way this was going. Like, this could have been a little bit more Pan's Labyrinth than it was. Like, we had the visual cues from Pan's Labyrinth early on in the film. The father's face-smashing scene was particularly good. Oof, um, yeah, yeah, and they didn't care about. And it that out.
1: is the other thing is there. There's a focus on the grotesque, like holy shit. Um, Jim Beaver's bashed in face was fucking visceral. Oh yeah. Like the prop work on that was great. The the dummy they used to smash into the sink after the first one, because it's a very good likeness of his head, and it's caved in in parts. It's fucked up.
0: It's a great moment in the text of the film. I think partly for its emotional resonance and I mean part of where Guillermo del Toro gets so much of what he does in his work is definitely from the gothic like he is very intimately familiar with Spanish gothic um, and other forms as well and there is this kind of focus on violence and it's specifically disfigurement like that's what it usually is there's something about the body and you know disfiguring the body, losing a limb, um, being cut in a certain way, uh, having your face disfigured, that the gothic literature and stuff afterwards in this surrealist period um, all kind of explore because that's all stuff that's about identity, right, and like a sort of destruction of identity to a certain extent. It's also something that's a reference to um other things going on during the Victorian era you know like the gothic literature genre is really kind of the beginning of what we know today to be horror films Like that's where this comes from and it comes from a very specific type of theater that comes out of the gothic called Grand Guignol um which is this type of theater performance you could go and see. They were uh scary shows sometimes with ghosts. They were also about reenactments of really bloody murders and stuff like that. So you could go and see Grand Guignol theater and see these sorts of gory stories play out on stage and um del toro really plays into that because that is his strong suit
1: um yeah the other thing is also uh specifically the locks of hair i think really foreshadow something happening in return so yeah i think like yeah very much feel free to back feel free to disagree with me here but i think she was supposed to get scalped by the machine
0: Yeah, scalped, I think, would have been the most likely thing or like her head gets crushed or something like that. I would bet you that originally that was what they wanted to happen.
1: I think if I had to guess, because one of the things about her character in the later half of the movie is that she is full of an inhuman rage that drives her past pain. Yeah, You know, she grabs knives. Grabs hot
0: food. takes... Yeah. She...
1: She holds on to things despite being attacked with a blade. You know, she's moving despite having a puncture wound in her collar. So, you know, she she's kind of the Terminator there. So what I kind of expect, I think, is... I think the way this plays out, at least in my mind, is that, you know, she'd get scalped and then she would continue, like, threatening and advancing on Edith to kind of just die on her feet. Just standing up and threatening. Because that's also the kind of, like, tragic figure. Like, it's, it, I think it fits with the kind of aesthetics of the film is I to die so. standing in the snow.
0: Oh, yeah. And also to die disfigured as well. I think that would have been a very fitting ending for that character in particular. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it would also be a good contrast to her ghost, which is very, you know, regal and put together. Like, yes, she has a face and shadow. But everything about her ghost suggests nobility and regality and being, like, a- aesthetic composition. Whereas she's out in the snow being bloody and violent and uncouth, I guess you could say. Especially when you look at the weapon she chooses, it's a big cleaver. It's a, it's a very working class kind of thing. Everyone else is, you know, stiletto blades or fountain pens. <laughs> and she's out there with a cleaver. Yeah. Next to an industrial machine. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, like, that's maybe another thing we can look at is the kind of interjection of the Industrial Revolution into the aristocracy and the meaning of money.
0: Oh, yeah. Big time.
1: Because, <laughs> like, you know, again, we go back to uh, Jim Beaver. Jim Beaver is the industrialist. That is where the money and the old aristocracy is coming to the industrialist to beg for scraps
0: yep which was exactly what was happening at the time and there was all kinds of just like well and we get this that plays out in that scene where uh, Thomas Sharp is presenting his idea and like basically all of this stuff that they've been able to depend on previously this uh, aristocratic privilege of like you know you show someone one of your inventions and somebody just decides to bankroll it that ain't gonna cut it in like 18 or well I guess this is 1901 1890s New York it's just not and so they do have that great moment it's also a moment where a lot of women are working too and sometimes for the first time so even Edith and her father is quite well off and you know she's able to come into the office to type up her stories that would have been that's a big deal, especially for American women, for British women at the time, especially British aristocrats. Eee, they were shying away from that, which we really kind of get a sense of from Thomas Sharp's sister.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to make a note specifically there, um... Is one of the things that we kind of engage with, and I I feel like this is a little bit of like meta commentary on the film's thing, is specifically the kind of notation and the call outs to both uh, Jane Austen and Mary Shelley. Yeah. Um, Because Jane Austen, I think, is seen as like she's still beloved today and her stories are fantastic, but she is seen as a very kind of old world kind of um, formulation on the female writer. Mm. And especially recently, and I would say I'm more after this film comes out than I think at the time in than 2015, is there's been a bit of a renaissance or a re-imaging of Mary Shelley. Yes, there has been. As kind of like the primo goth bitch. Yes. Didn't she carry around her husband's calcified heart or something like I that? I think
0: so. I think she might Like have.
1: she lost her virginity on her mother's grave. It's like she she was fucking hardcore. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you know, everyone was doing absinthe and experimenting with galvanism. It was a crazy time. Truly, it was a crazy time.
1: Yeah, you can say that again. (laughs) Um, So, and the other thing, and I think this kind of plays into why I can accept that Charlie Hunnam isn't a love interest, is she says to, you know, the rest of the gathered regency in the, uh, not the regency, but, you know, the rest of the high society women in you know as she's passing them on the stairs like you know i would look she's uh she's a jane austen it's like no i'd rather die like uh you know uh mary shelley you know uh a widow yeah i think yeah a widow alone a widow alone no it's a
0: widow
1: oh is it a widow okay so it was this perception of the woman as an individualistic entity as opposed to an accessory to a man
0: Right, yeah.
1: So let's talk about ghosts here. I want. I, I think we we're gonna just going to go into some deep cuts yeah. here. Um, because one of the things I want to talk about is, and this is weird for me because I have only seen this film once. But what happened is <laughs> uh, my husband came in kind of like 20 minutes into it. And we had a brief conversation about what I was watching. And, uh, you know, he and I want to watch this again later. But he spoiled the twist for me. Oh. And that... Because, like, I don't yeah. care. Like, our okay, our policy on spoilers is kind of interesting. And I think this plays into why it wasn't that well received. Is because I don't think that this movie is designed for their first viewing. I think that this movie can only really be appreciated as, to borrow a gaming term, in a new game plus. Because having the context to understand what's coming informs so much of what you can see on screen.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that was actually my major beef with this movie when it first came out. Um, Also, I, I love Guillermo del Toro, and I love his willingness to bring a gothic story to the screen. I think that's wonderful, and... This film is so intricately detailed. Like, I have watched this movie, I watch it pretty much every fall, every time I notice some new detail in this, every single damn time. And that is a really impressive thing for a filmmaker to be able to do. I don't... With the age of this sort of, like, hardcore, you know, like, torture horror and you know, all of these different horror sequels like The Conjuring and The Ring, it's hard to get audiences to watch a movie like this. Like, this is going back to sort of the roots of horror for, um, specifically for Americans. And I think that also partly makes it uh, difficult. I think that's partly why people were sort of like not really into it or didn't really go and see it you know it's very much something that they may not be familiar with and it may be one of those movies that just ends up having a kind of cult status at some point but we'll see
1: absolutely the other thing though i think is this was a hard film to market oh yeah i don't remember hearing a lot about it except that it was guillermo del toro's uh, gothic horror and you know That's a sell for me, but even then, like, that wasn't enough of a sell for me to see this in theaters, but that also has to do with distribution problems, is, like, the posters make it look like a ghost romance, I guess, and (laughs) I barely remember the trailers for
0: it. Yeah, because how it was marketed over here was they're kind of like, OMG, you guys, Tom Hiddleston is in a period piece, and it's coming out soon, and so that was how it was marketed here in the States, and uh, yeah, I just I don't think that works because sometimes the publics that go and see horror movies are different and distinctive from those that go and see say a, a period romance, so
1: yeah, I believe uh, this is I believe from the Wikipedia article on the reception and you know critical and commercial. But apparently the audience uh, reported back about 60% female and like 55% of that was 25 and up. So this kind of looks like it skipped the what you would expect to be the typical horror audience, which is, you know, young adults through teenagers through young adults.
0: I think that kind of makes sense because like I and I'm not the only woman who went to see this, obviously. But as somebody who went into this movie, I went into this movie specifically because it was gothic. So they may have caught the, uh, how do I put this, the uh, sad grad student crowd. I think that was probably who went to see this. Um, and uh, that's also a public, you know? We're, we're out there, we're sad, and we're into uh, nerdy things.
1: Going back to the second viewing uh, thought, uh, one of the things is how deliberately paced this movie is. Mm-hmm. It, there's very little sudden... And even when you have like, you know, a scary sequence with a ghost is like, look at the bathtub sequence. That sequence probably lasts, what, maybe two minutes? Yep. I'd have to estimate. And for what happens, very little actually happens in that is she goes to the bathtub. She sees the lady with the cleaver in her head. She runs away from it. The lady gets out of the tub and follows her. And that's kind of it. And in a modern horror movie, in something that was tightly paced, that would be maybe a 30 second sequence. Yeah. But it takes so long, and because the horror is not in what could happen, the horror is in what is happening. And that, I think, is very atypical of modern
0: horror. Oh, yeah. Yep.
1: But that being said, there are some great jump scares in it. Oh, like yeah, totally. uh, when the ghost appears in the doorway and slams it shut and it turns out to be a closet. That's such a good, that's such a good oh, scare. Oh
0: yeah, that's a great jump scare.
1: Yeah. Um, but this does lead me to a crazy take. Okay. Which I like. Um, Give me your craziest so like, take. Okay, Annie, what is the audience? Um... Mm
0: we're all ghosts we're all ghosts yeah
1: consider this annie characters don't look at the camera until the final act
0: ah wait
1: we are outside of time and we are powerless to stop what's going to happen even though we know it's happening this is why the second viewing is important oh my
0: gosh, are you serious Oh, no, that works. Tell me I'm wrong. Annie. No, that works so well. Oh my god. Yeah. Because
1: up until the up until the incest is revealed in its full glory, <laughs> no one looks at the camera. But then Edith looks directly at the camera. Tom Hiddleston looks directly at the camera. And uh <laughs> And uh, Lucille looks directly at the camera. Yeah. At that point, they have acknowledged the ghost. Oh, wow. Because we are seeing what's happening, uh, especially on a second viewing. Once you know the twist, you look at Edith and you want to tell her what's happening, but you can't because she will not understand.
0: Mm.
1: Our horror is not in seeing the ghosts. Mm-hmm. Our horror is being one of them.
0: I think this is one of your best ones yet, and it totally makes sense. Ah. Yeah.
1: I bet. Uh huh.
0: Uh huh. (laughs) Yeah. You're getting imaginary applause from me because I think that's brilliant.
1: And uh, yeah, I mean, that kind of of wraps it for me. I mean, there's something to be said for the house being a character and literally breathing, but that just really kind of falls into Guillermo del Toro is a brilliant bastard, and that's kind of his baseline.
0: Yeah, and also in a lot of Gothic horror novels uh, and stories, there are houses that are um, personified in a way. So like this house doesn't just breathe, it has blood um the clay is kind of its blood and it speaks as well through the voices of the ghosts so yeah
1: it breathes through the chimneys in the flue it has temperament in the elevator yada 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 and it's wounded
0: it is wounded and i think you can make the case that the house itself is actually the main haunting in this film Um, The house is the corp exquisite, you know, it's the exquisite corpse, it's the British Empire in a state of decay, it's the nation and national identity in a state of change and transformation. Um, The Gothic is really a way for... Uh, the British Gothic specifically was a way for people to meditate on the decay of the British Empire really uh, the decay of the aristocracy really the decay of values that um, Britain had held up for a long time as the central tenets of its identity and its system of hierarchy that was all changing because of the Industrial Revolution um, and its status as a superpower was being challenged so with all that political context out the window i mean the house is really quite a beautiful metaphor in this film and i think um i think i speak for both doc and myself when i say in our sort of letter to the director here dear Guillermo del Toro please keep making movies like this one um please keep making films about places that are in a state of transition and uncertainty and fear I think that's where you do some of your best and most detailed work Um, this film is truly exquisite it is amazing to come back to after a period of time and watch again I'm constantly finding new things in it and there are very few films that are like that for me um, and perhaps for Doc, since he's seen this for the first time as well. So keep making stuff like this, and gee, I hope they give you Star Wars. I really do.
1: To quote Eddie Izzard, And that's why it's a bad idea when cousins marry! <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep.
1: And I think that's us for the day, then. That's a wrap. Unless you've got anything yet. Well, yep, yeah, okay. Uh, this has been The Movie Morgue, your movie autopsy podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Movie Morgue Cast. Or download us wherever good podcasts are found. <laughs> I've been your host, Sylvia Emery. You guys can follow me on Twitch and Twitter at Double Doc MD. I will be streaming a whole slew of horror games this October, so uh, hopefully I'll see a couple of you guys there. Annie, where can people find you and your work?
0: Well, I'm Annie Neller, and as always, you all can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Lights and Music, where I post pictures of my dog and the food that I eat.
1: And as always, we have a Discord and a Facebook community. Feel free to see links down below in either of those because we like talking about these and these conversations absolutely continue after the recording is over. So thank you guys so much. Our intro music, as always, is uh, Trouble by Ipso Factopus. Find a link to their EP in the description. And uh, we have – please uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we're supported by you know listeners, patrons, and friends. Listening helps us. Talking about us helps us. And if you want to financially support the podcast, our Patreon is patreoncom Uh Links to everything below. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
0: Bye bye. Bye.